The only network. The only network. The only network. The only network. Hooking you up with the hottest Christian hip hop and R&P. Holy Culture Radio. What's good with it, fam? You are now locked in exclusively to Counterculture. I'm so privileged to be your host today. My name is Pastor D.A. Horton, and I am humbled to be the lead teaching elder at Koinonia Bible Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Counterculture is the evangelistic outreach ministry of our local church, and it is all of our heart's desire at Koinonia to make sure that we can do all that we can to present saints worldwide with a solid biblical answer for the cultural issues that plague us at large. And you can find out more information about our local church on the World Wide Web at www.kbckc.org. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns that you would love to be addressed on the Counterculture Show, feel free to hit me up directly at dahorton at kbckc.org. Ladies and gentlemen, let's take issues of the culture and filter them through the lens of scripture. Let's chop it up and get it in. Peace. What's good with a family of God? You are locked into counter culture. I am privileged to be your host. My name is Pastor D.A. Horton, humbled to be the lead teaching elder at Koinonia Bible Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Today we are going to talk about social injustice and spiritual injustice and the balance that needs to be lived out by the people of God in the urban context. Now let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer before we dig in. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have today to come before you, to study your word, to see the reality that is before us as humanity, that we are sinners and we need a savior. And unfortunately for generation upon generation upon generation, during your current work of redemptive history, through the lens of the church, the expression of your bride, Father, we have failed We have failed in many areas, especially when it comes to the context of the city. And I pray today, Father God, that some of the things that we will be discussing and highlighting in your word, I pray, Father, that you would use these truths from your word to implement a corrective action plan for your saints that are currently living now so that we can pick up the baton and rightfully run our lane and then pass it to the oncoming generations if it be in your grace. That we would find balance in speaking up about social issues at the same time spiritual issues, Lord God, that are the actual undertones of the manifested physical reality. So I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all things that are said and done. And Jesus, I pray that the testimony of your personal work would be amplified And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the supernatural ministry that only you can do in the lives of the hearers of this podcast. May you be glorified and honored alone, Lord God. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the question that has been asked um, to myself is, what's your take on Trayvon Martin's situation? Number one, anytime someone is murdered, it grieves our God. And it should grieve the people of God. Not just for the simple fact that a life was taken, but for the simple fact that the image of God has been sought to be destroyed. And the reality of murder is that which is an attack on God's image because human beings, we are the only form of God's creation that rocks certain characteristics that God shared with us on a finite level. Now, what I mean by that is this, is that humanity is the crowning act of God's creation because humanity alone is the image bearers of our creator, our God. But so often false teachers like your Kenneth Copeland's and your Creflo Dollars have come out and said that we are lowercase gods, that we have the God gene within us, that we are a lower class God, that we have the ability to do certain things that God alone can do, specifically sparking things into existence with our own creative genius and the power force behind our words. Well, all that is false. Being created in the image of God does not mean that we replicate God, but rather that we are to represent God in the way that we live our lives and we are to represent him well. Now, the reality of being made in God's image is simply this, is that God chose to share with human beings certain characteristics of himself that he withheld 
from the rest of creation, including the animal kingdom, okay? So the reality of that is, is that on a brief level, God shared with us personality, spirituality, rationality, and morality, okay? Just to give you a few. And the reality of this is that no other form of creation shares these because God alone shared these alone with human beings. So anytime that a life is taken, we are seeking to destroy the image of God. Now, even after the fall, all of human beings, although we are tainted by sin, still bear the image of God and we still are to represent God. So in the case of Trayvon Martin and the countless number of individuals who have been murdered just in this year alone in the urban context, that was an attack on the image of God. And that should grieve our hearts as it grieves God. And the reality of it is, is that we, the people of God, should seek to do all that we can to restore the understanding of God's image, to protect the sanctity of life. In addition to this, we as the church, those who are the living stones, those who have embraced Christ exclusively to be our Savior, understanding that he alone is the only one qualified to save all sinners from their sins. And the reality then, therefore, is that only those who embrace the truth of the personal work of Jesus Christ will be saved. Okay? So the reality of that is this, is that we the church have a responsibility when it comes to social justice and all of the all the secondary nuances that are under that umbrella social justice. So when we have the issues of poverty, okay, when we have the issue of marginalized resources to a marginalized population, when we have issues such as prostitution and crime and drugs and gangs, when we have murder, when we have violent crimes, when we have poor education, all of these elements most definitely are all a part of social injustice. And there's so many more nuances that I have not even addressed yet. And so the reality of it is, is that we as believers need to step back and say, what is, number one, my individual responsibility in light of social justice? Number two, what is my local church's responsibility? Because there obviously is power in numbers. And then number three, what about the universal body of Jesus Christ worldwide? And when I say universal, let me qualify that. Universal meaning every believer who has embraced Jesus Christ that lives all across the planet earth today that is the universal church militant as some of my dear brothers and sisters would call it meaning those who are actively engaged on frontline living for the glory of god now all of these issues that we are seeking to address we then also have to check our hearts because we are saints who live incarcerated in a sinful flesh so the thing that we have to understand is that we should not create for ourselves a platform under the auspice of social justice just so that we can feed our ego and our pride. So the reality of it is that we must find balance in addressing social injustice. And I'm convinced that this balance is found when we couple our battle with social injustice with the spiritual injustice that is also a immediate reality in the urban context and beyond so the question is okay damon what do you mean by spiritual injustice well if i were to say over the past few hundred years in american history even far beyond that yo dame what is the greatest detriment to the church if you will in america over the past few centuries and again this is an oversimplified answer very general but I would have to say the greatest spiritual injustice that the church has neglected over these centuries is that of biblical discipleship if people were truly being biblically biblically discipled okay if the numbers of professing Christians were genuine discipled Christians then there would be no need for all of the gospel emphasis that we have going on as we're instructing and reintroducing to some but introducing for the first time to many churchgoers the biblical gospel the biblical Jesus understanding that the scriptures are our final authority if we were doing an excellent job with discipleship just, let's just take over the past four decades in the American landscape if we were doing an excellent job would the cities of our day still look like they do today if cats back in the 
40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s were employing biblical discipleship in churches all across the cities of America. Now, again, that's a what if. So the answer could go either yes or no. Okay, so all of that is subjective. But I think that if we unpack what biblical discipleship looks like, according to the scriptures, that that would necessitate it to be biblical discipleship, then then I think our American landscape would look different. So I want to make sure that I'm very clear before we begin to go in. Um, Number one, social injustice. Should we speak up about these things absolutely i think yes sir we should um should we highlight certain things over the other it would just in my opinion would just be uh based off of your immediate context in your city now when we have national cases like uh, trayvon martin we have to understand within context that we have a greater responsibility at large in regards to the aspects of murder especially especially amongst the african-american constituencies of america Um, In addition to this, we also have to understand that we have a responsibility to our local immediate context where we are located, in addition to the national context and the national platform that Trayvon Martin's case has created. In addition to this, I think coupling that is, number one, how are you living life on life with your mission, with your coworkers, with those in your own household, and those in your local church? So often we want to turn to government funding and gentrification to be the answer to every social injustice in America. And black and white on paper, some people may say that is what we need. We need more education. We need better quality education. We need more government programs. We need more funding. We need more this. We need more that. But I think if we get to the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter is this, is that government funding never changes the heart of a sinner. More programs never change the heart of a sinner. Again, to go back to the reality, it's God the Holy Spirit who does this. And he does this when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached with boldness. Again, this is what Paul said in Romans chapter 116 and Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 17. The reality of it is, is that sinners are born with wicked hearts. We covered this in the last podcast, Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are incurably ill. Okay, our hearts are incurably ill. So the reality of that is this, is that money is not going to change the hardened hearts of humanity. It's the gospel. So we need more Christians as they are being vocal about social injustice to be equally as vocal about spiritual injustice. And that is the reality of sinners need a savior. Christ Jesus is the only qualified savior. In addition to this, I think that we must begin to reintroduce to many and then also introduce to some biblical discipleship and what this looks like. So in the situation regarding Trayvon Martin specifically, number one, I think we should be constantly in prayer for his parents, his immediate family members, and everyone affected by the situation, in addition to Mr. Zimmerman and his family members as well. In addition to that, while we're praying for them, we should also go in on behalf of all of those around our nation who are suffering the same types of loss. Their family members are being murdered. So the reality of it is this, is that we need to have a balance in the way that we are praying for individuals. Although Trayvon Martin's case is very, very important and it is very crucial in the climate of our nation right now, we should not forsake what's going on in that situation. And we should pray for the justice of our God to be manifested through this situation. And we should pray for the salvation of individuals who may be questioning God, questioning their status of eternity, questioning why would the Lord allow this to happen if God were real. And we need to be capitalizing on those conversations by injecting to those people who are seeking out those answers the gospel of Jesus Christ and we must be doing this in our own cities we must be doing this in our own neighborhoods in our own churches in addition to this I think also the one thing we have to inject into the conversation is the necessity to pray for those who have committed these murders making them aware that they need Christ And the reality is that God is a forgiving God. Now, this may arouse certain emotions in you, the listener, by saying, how can God forgive one who takes the life of another? And how can God and why would God? And those answers are honestly summed up through the lens of the cross. As that we look that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. First Peter 2.24, the reality of that 
is seeing that the blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than every sin that we could ever commit. So the reality of what that can look like is very liberating to the sinner who knows that they're in sin. Recently, I was able to dialogue with someone who recently committed a murder and I went and visited them in jail. And the reality of it is, is that they even told me I was raised in this specific religion my whole life. And for the past X amount of years, I've been basically living as an atheist because I could not care about God. He was not real to me. And he looked at me and said, Damon, as I'm looking at you right now, is there hope for me? And I told him, yes, as long as there is breath in your lungs, there is hope for you. And the reality of it is, is I begin to express to him the gospel. And I said, now what you got to understand, and let me explain this to you in terms that now you will understand because you're a part of the system. Is that you need to go to God and you need to take the plea bargain that God is offering you, that he's been offering you before you were even physically incarcerated. And I looked at his eyes and I told him, I said, this is the plea bargain that God has offered you. Number one, you must admit that you are a guilty sinner, that you forthrightly have committed not just the sin of murder, but every sin that you have committed for your whole life, from gluttony to pride to fornication to lying to whatever these sins are you and you alone know what sins you have committed and I begin to show him what sin looks like according to the scriptures I said you must say all of my sins I am guilty of them and I said in exchange for your admission of guilt you then must profess that you believe that what Jesus Christ did in your place by taking your execution sentence that you rightfully deserved that he did not deserve that he absorbed your punishment in totality on the cross and then he resurrected and he lives forevermore. And I said, if you embrace this plea bargain by admitting you're a sinner, believing what Jesus Christ has done, confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, understanding that you cannot work or earn salvation, but it was completely completed on your behalf by Jesus Christ, then you'll be saved. And though you may spend the rest of your days on this side of eternity locked up in prison, the reality of it is, is that when you close your eyes for the last time on this side of eternity and open them on the next side of eternity, you will behold the one who was slain on your behalf. You will behold the one who took God's full wrath and spared you because you trusted that what he did was enough to save you. And I told him, I said, listen to me, I had to embrace that same plea bargain. I had to admit my guilt as well for all the sins that I committed. And then I asked him, I said, now six months ago, if I would have told you this, would you have believed me or given me a thought of anything that I was saying? He would have said, nah. And I said, so do you see how God has intervened in your life to bring you to this point? He began to then open up to me and said that the cellmate across from him told him that he needs to begin to turn his affection to God. Then he told me the correction officer that is the housing sergeant over his unit just told him that morning that he needs to stop living selfish and he needs to start turning his attention to God. And then he looked at me and said, and now those two events led me to even be willing to meet with you today, Damon. And now you tell me this. And then he told me this, and this is what overjoyed my heart. He said, everything you're saying for the first time in my life, it makes sense. I really see how God loves me and I see how he's willing to forgive me. And then he said, but I cannot... I cannot forgive myself. And then I told him, it's impossible to forgive yourself if you have never received the forgiveness of God. I said, you cannot ask the one that you murdered for their forgiveness, but you can ask the creator of the one that you murdered for his forgiveness. In addition to this, your offense is against him because he was your victim's creator. And I said, go to him. After I left that conversation with that man, I drove north to a funeral. And in the middle of the city, in the heart of the hood, I was right there ministering to a family that was grieving, a family that was angry, a family that was asking the question why, and I forthrightly told them I don't have the answer to why. That family was gathered because a five-month-old baby boy was murdered the week before, and this was his homegoing ceremony. He was murdered by his grandmother's boyfriend. And so the family is in turmoil because here is a family figure that took the life of this young five-month-old baby boy. And the reality of it is, is that I spoke with the mother the day before the funeral, and she's young. She's in her early 20s, and she was just grieving 
and the question why and she was dealing with details of the of the of the of the funeral arrangements and everything and um, I was just seeking to minister to her by sharing the beauty of the gospel and she said that she had put her trust in Christ Jesus some years ago and that her faith is being tested and that she felt very weak spiritually so I began to comfort her with the words of Romans chapter 8 and as I began to express to her the reality of this injustice that has been done, I wanted to interject to her the reality of spiritual justice that we need to pray for. Because as a close member of, uh, of the immediate family is now being charged with second degree murder and it involves the victimization of her only son. I said the reality of it is, is that we need to pray for the man who did this. And so going into the funeral right after that visit to that man in the jail, after sharing the gospel with him and spending time working through the nuances and the beauty of forgiveness according to the scriptures and the beauty of our God and the sacrifice of Christ on the behalf of sinners and the demonstration of God's love, I stood before a crowded, crowded room of individuals that were angry, frustrated, grieving, irritated, asking the question why some doubting why would God even allow this to happen? And I shared with them the beauty of the gospel. And then I said, as justice we pray for spiritually and socially, we pray for it to come forth. I said, we have to begin to understand the reality that God is sovereign no matter what happens. And that as we pray for social justice, we must also add to the conversation spiritual justice. And I said this to a grieving family. And they began to look at me puzzled, like, what is, what is he talking about? And then I began to say, we need to pray for the man that is incarcerated right now for this very reason that we are gathered here today. And we need to pray that the Lord will barrage him with people that will hit him off with the gospel. And we need to pray for every other suspect who has committed a murder in our city, in the suburban areas around our metropolitan area. And we need to go in and represent the gospel and the implications of it all throughout the streets of our city. And then I began to share with them. I said, listen, I just came from a jail from a man who is sitting where the suspect of the reason that why we're gathered here, the victimization of this young five-month-old precious baby boy. And I just dialogued with him. And the things that he's wrestling with, I'm sure the man that committed this crime is wrestling with as well. And as I shared the gospel with the family, I said, listen to me. The same gospel that I shared with that man in that cell, I share with you today because at the cross, all of us are equal and we must realize that we are all sinners. Though we may not be murderers, we definitely know what it's like to have anger and malice and bitterness in our heart. Though we may not be one who perpetrates and commits these crimes maliciously, the reality of it is, is that we have gossiped and we have lied and we have committed sins of our own and we stand just as guilty as those who were incarcerated for murder in the eyes of God. And the only plea bargain that I offered you today is found in Jesus Christ. So I began to inject the spiritual justice, meaning that God desires to justify and he will justify fully and forensically, legally declare us guilt-free from our sins when we embrace Jesus Christ as our savior and what he did and his work that was completed on our behalf. And the family began to rejoice. And the family began to turn their affections towards forgiveness. And the family began to say, okay, what does forgiveness look like? How can we forgive him? What about the times that we doubt? And I said, this is the beauty of our God is that when we embrace Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us and gives us the, the power and the ability to put to death the misdeeds of our flesh. So I said, forgiveness and living it out is possible, but only, only when Christ Jesus is our savior. And the families, I dialogued with them after the, the time that we had together. They were very appreciative of the gospel. They were challenged to forgive. And they said they will most definitely seek to forgive the man and then turn their affections to the cross of Jesus Christ. So again, I challenge us, you the listener, those that you may play this podcast for, that may be suffering, that may be victims, that may be the perpetrators and the suspects. What if the situation with Trayvon Martin does not end in a way that we see is justified? What if Zimmerman never gets arrested? What if he gets arrested, goes to trial, and he is then found not guilty? Or what if he's found guilty and he's given just maybe a year's probation? 
What is our response to that? Well, I think that we should definitely be ones who cry foul, but I definitely think that we should also couple our cry of foul with a cry of forgiveness and a cry of mercy and a cry of God to intervene spiritually on behalf of the reality of what is going on physically in our nation. There was a situation with a young girl named Latasha back in 1992 in South Central L.A. where she was murdered. Um, and, And the lady that killed her was taken to court, tried, convicted, given a sentence, but then it was retracted and she was offered then five years probation. And shortly after that, the videotapes of Rodney King surfaced. And shortly after that, the uh, police officers were then put to trial and they were acquitted of all charges. And then the L.A. riots happened. The hood was boiling and people were looking for an excuse to let out their frustrations. I've been telling people for a few years now that that, I think we're progressing back to what the climate looked like in our inner cities with the rise of gangs, the rise of drugs, these social injustice crimes now gaining more viral attention than ever they could back in the early 90s. Many, many ways, 2012 parallels 1992. And I think now, rather than being reactive, the church should be proactive and seeking to inject a balance with social injustice and spiritual injustice, beginning to live out forgiveness, beginning to inject the scriptures, inject the gospel of Jesus Christ into our conversations about social issues so that we can be on the front lines of defense of ministry when issues go amiss when injustice prevails as it seems physically that spiritually we will couple it with the fact that there is an accounting day that will come in the future and all of us will be held accountable for our actions and reactions to the injustices so again there's nothing wrong with speaking up about social injustice as long as we have a solution to our cry of foul when it comes to social injustice and I think that that solution is found by making everyone aware of the spiritual injustice of our own sinful accounts and God being both just and the justifier through the personal work of Jesus Christ specifically on the cross when he took our execution penalty for us so I think that if we approach it that way No matter what happens in regards to the situation with Trayvon Martin, we should pray for God's justice. We should pray for the facts to surface and for that which is the right penalty to be administered. But we should also pray for the souls of everyone involved in that situation and all other situations that are going on in our inner cities all across America. And that we should begin to inject the gospel and bring a balance, a much needed balance to the social injustice by saying, but here is spiritual justice found through the personal work of Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would again be proactive and not reactive. I pray that we would be on mission and I pray that we would get out there in our cities and hold the hands of those that are grieving in our families and hold the hands of those that are weeping and asking why and understand that we don't have the answers to that, but we can give them the solution to the greater problem, which is our sin sickness. And that is through the God man, Jesus Christ. Begin to weep with those who weep, begin to stand with those who can't stand for themselves and begin to intervene and find ways to minister to the marginalized, to the disenfranchised, and to those who are self-righteous and they may have it all together because they need the gospel just as much as the cats and the projects on the block or in the hood. It's about balance. So let's put that balance into reality and let's trust God and let's most definitely cry foul when there is a foul, but then let's also make sure that we are interjecting the solution and that is Jesus Christ alone. Let me go ahead and pause right here for a station break and let's get it right back in. This is Counterculture and I'm your host, D.A. Horton. Thank you for staying with me. I'll be right back in a few seconds. Your official number one network for Christian hip-hop and R&B. Holy, holy, holy culture radio. And so the reality of it is, is that those who are victims and their families need our prayers. The family of Trayvon Martin needs our prayers, not just until the case dies down, but for the remaining time that we have on this side of eternity. But also Mr. Zimmerman and everyone else involved on his particular side. For every suspect or every convict, every confessing or denying murderer, they need our prayers as well. This is the beauty of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We need to be engaged in evangelistic prayer. 
for those who are victims, for those who are suspects, for those who have admitted guilt and those who will deny it until their deathbed confession or before they take lethal injection. We must continue to pray for them because until they die, until they no longer have breath in their lungs, there is hope of redemption. And that redemption is only found through Jesus Christ and what he has done. So when we talk about social injustice and when we talk about spiritual injustice, the balance, the balance is found in our proclamation of the cross. Now I want to go ahead and take a brief station break. And when we come back, I kind of want to quote some, uh, some Ray Bakke. He has a wonderful book, A Theology as Big as the City. If you have not read it, Man, you've got to read the textbook. It's excellent. I prescribe it to my students at Calvary Bible College. Um, but I want to quote from him because he, he does something very interesting. He said, if God were to walk through the city, Ray Bakke says, this is what I believe biblically that God's city would look like. And he begins to use some Old Testament passages to kind of hammer through that. I want to kind of bring that into scope. And then I also want to close out with that introduction or reintroduction of biblical discipleship in light of what we should be doing while we are quote-unquote on mission uh, in finding this balance between social injustice and spiritual injustice. Seeking to find that remedy of the cross which then will allow us to live out social and spiritual justice in the urban context. So let's take a brief break. More of the hottest Christian hip-hop and R&P with no commercials. Holy, Holy Culture, Culture Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture. I'm privileged to be your host, Pastor D.A. Horton. Humbled to be the lead teaching elder at Koinonia Bible Church. I thank you so much for keeping it locked into this episode of Counterculture, where we are talking about a balance of social justice and spiritual justice. Um, before the break, I said that you need to go cop a theology as big as the city by Dr. Ray Bakke. Uh, he wrote this, I believe, while he was serving in the city of Chicago. And so on page 81, 82, and 83, he kind of introduces the reality that if God were building a city, what would it look like? And he uses um, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25 as his text, premising that and setting it up by saying, Isaiah helps me with the concept of transcendence. The whole city, not my people or my neighborhood alone, is to be the focus of ministry. And then he begins to just kind of rummage through the passage and quotes it and says, remember, this was intended to be an encouragement to urban builders on their way back to renovate Jerusalem. God reminds them and us that the eternal city is also under construction. We need to live, therefore, as believers. And what are the key components of the city that God is building? Well, number one, public celebrations and happiness we see in verses 17 through 25. Public health for children and the aged in verse 20. Housing for all in verse 21, food for all in verse 22, family support systems in verse 23, and then an absence of violence in verse 25. He puts simply, if this is what God says a city ought to look like, and if God's spirit lives in me, this is what I want Chicago to look like. And I think we could all sympathize with the words of Dr. Ray Bakke, that this is something that we want to see in our cities. And this is something that I think that the people of God should innately have with inside of us. Now, again, I think that we have to keep these things in perspective and in balance because so often we just want to get so ambitious that we want to conquer the world in one day. And I think, again, the reality of it is, is that we will, for the sake of the city and for the sake of getting initiatives through legislation or getting things done in our city, that we can often put ourselves in compromising positions by seeking funding, seeking partnerships with people that may be godless or have a profession of God, but live as if God does not exist. So let me qualify what I'm saying. Should we never have partnerships outside the kingdom of God? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if we are partnering with other entities, we must understand what our role in that partnership is, especially if we're the people of God. For us, it should not be about TV time. For us, it should be about discipleship. The proclamation of the gospel as the Holy Spirit indwells new believers and they are new creations in Christ. Now the church must continue its work in seeking to disciple those individuals that made a profession of faith. 
But urban evangelism and discipleship, man, is something that is very, very unique. Not just because the urban landscape is changing, but for the simple fact that biblical discipleship is not normal in our day today. So often I'm convinced that the Great Commission is often in the hood seen as the Great Omission. In his article, The Discipleship Challenge, Winfield Bevin said that North American churches lose 74% of the people between the ages of 18 and 24. Now, that's a big gap. And I love the difference between the word convert and disciple. Because so many times when we address social issues as the church, we are seeking just to make converts and we are not following up and seeing them become disciples if their faith is genuine, if their profession of faith is genuine. I love how Donald McKim in the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms define convert, one who changes from one faith to another. And I'm going to be real with you, man. Uh, in God's grace, man, I've been involved in inner city ministry, uh, man, honestly, for the past 21 years. I'm 31, and I was first involved in it at the age of 10. Now, the reality of it is for the first six years of my life, almost six years of that, that ministry life, I wasn't even saved. But for the last 15 plus years, man, in God's grace, he's grown me and matured me. And I've seen cats that will jump from one faith to another. They'll, they'll go from atheist to Christian if you give them a hot cup of soup and some bread and a place to sleep. I've seen a lot of individuals that would say, yo, man, I'm, I'm going to flush my dope down the toilet when I go home. I just want to be free of God to help me beat the murder rap. In addition to this, I've seen many, many people just get so elated that thousands of people would have raised their hand at a neighborhood outreach and they report those numbers in the church the next day and people celebrate. But then as time goes on, you often wonder, where are those thousand plus people that we reported about? Where are they today? How come they're not in our church or in a church or are they? Is there a tracking system to find that? So I think rather than focusing on converts who will make a decision in the heat of the moment, we need to seek to have disciples. And I love how George Barna in his book, Growing True Disciples, defines the word disciple. One who is becoming a complete and competent follower of Jesus Christ. That is what our city needs to see. More complete and competent followers of Jesus Christ who are growing in their faith. Now, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it to the day I die. Every believer, from the oldest elder who is functioning today to the newest convert, we all have the same job description. It's called the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, this phrasing that he is saying sets up a command, not a suggestion. And so often, the church in the urban context thinks that the Great Commission is a suggestion. It is a command. It's like a general in the army about to order a private or a sergeant or a lieutenant to fill, fulfill the orders that the general is about to give. This word authority gives us the right to use the authority of Jesus so we will not be ashamed and scared when we live out the command that Jesus gives us. So the authority of Christ both guides us and empowers us. So Jesus has all authority and he has delegated. The general Jesus Christ has delegated me private Damon Horton he has given me his authority that wherever I go on this world when people be well how can you say that and how dare you look the authority of my general gives me the right to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ and then have the privilege of walking hand in hand in progression spiritually to maturity with you for the remaining days of our time together then Jesus says, if all authority has been given to me in heaven and the earth, he says, go, therefore. In the Greek, it's phrased as you are going. So we are not to stay still or be stagnant as you're going. We are to be active in demonstrating our faith and make disciples of all nations. The command to make disciples, it's not to make converts or educated sinners. The commitment to this task is paralleled by the command to baptize. As the new believer is immersed totally in water, the person seeking to disciple should be totally immersed in the work of discipleship. In addition to this, of all nations, literally to all ethnicities, ta ethne, without distinction. So this should be all across the board. 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The focus of what disciples are to be taught is the teachings of Jesus. Teaching is the main focus. And the main focus is living out the teaching that we are giving. So the disciples are to live out the teachings of Christ. And Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This is not a command. It's a promise. Even to the end of the age, Jesus Christ remains with us. So I suggest that we have balance in our relationships. That number one, every believer should have a Paul, someone who is discipling us, pouring into us, holding us accountable. Someone should also have a Barnabas, someone that has appeared to us that we dialogue and process through and process things with. And then we have Timothy, someone that we disciple. And I think that we can see this of biblical support in 1 John chapter 2, 13 and 14. Now, these people can be different ages at different maturity levels. Drug dealers and gangs have been practicing discipleship like this in the urban core for decades. That's how we got OGs and peewees, man. It's common in urban ministry to co-labor with many believers who have never been discipled. And that's even more evidence that we have failed spiritually. And we have given an injustice to the urban context by failing a biblical discipleship. We got to look at the example of our Savior. Number one, he came to serve, not to be served. And so many people, when we address spiritual, excuse me, social issues, we want to be served. We don't want to talk about it unless we're given a specific platform. We don't want to do it when the TV's not there, when the, when the press is not there, when the people ain't putting us in their twit pics. <laughs> like, real talk, man. But Jesus Christ intentionally multiplied himself into the lives of 11 men, even extending love to Judas up until the very end. Now, Jesus taught his disciples a lot in three years. And how much of it did they really understand while they were with him? Eh, they really didn't understand that much. The reality of it is, is that let's contextualize the example of Jesus. Number one, after three years, Peter denied Christ. And what was Jesus' response? Well, in John chapter 21, 15 through 19, in those verses, he restores Peter. Now, if there is one main quality that we must possess in order to disciple in the urban context, it is patient with people who are seeking to grow in their faith. But let me qualify that because growing in the faith is not making excuses for unrepentant sin. If people are repenting and they're seeking to grow and they're making strides to grow, amen, to God be the glory, employ patience. But the reality of it is, if people are not repenting, according to what the scriptures identify as repentance, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, then the reality of it is, is, yo, this is where the reality of church discipline takes place. So it's one of two things. It's, yo, if they're growing and they're striving and they're making changes and they're living accountable and they're being transparent, amen. Bathe them in patience. Breathe grace unto them. But if they are unrepentant, then the scriptures clearly, clearly give us a true prescription and description about what we are supposed to do. Now that phrase, making disciples, simply in my mind is living life in transparency with an immature believer and maturing together. So what does maturity look like? Well, Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, number one, you've got to be theologically grounded in the word of God, seasoned speech, meaning evangelism with love. And as we grow up in all things, living Christ-like in all areas of life, we have to be connected to the body of Christ, meaning we have to be saved in order for these, quote unquote, making disciples for this to be a reality. We've got to be saved. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 maturity is demonstrated when we assess our trials testings and temptations trials this word is used to put someone to the test with the desire to prove their genuine nature it was used of uh, silversmiths when they would purify silver back in the day the reality of it is is that you will not see that you are mature until you go through a trial and prove your maturity now, the also word perfect means to lack nothing, being spiritually mature. Trials should bring believers closer to God and closer to the body of Christ. It should not make us run away. So the reality of it is, is we cling to the scriptures and we cling to the body of Christ, especially during our times of trials. And then when we're good and our lives are content, then we need to be there as the support system to remind suffering saints of the word of God and that we are there with them through their time of trial. First John chapter two, 12, excuse me, chapter two, verses 13 and 14. To me, there's three stages of spiritual growth seen in this verse. Number one, there are the fathers, those who are the most mature in the faith. There are young men. They are not as mature as the fathers, but they are theologically grounded and they are works in progress, progressing towards maturity. And then you have little children. 
who are the newest converts, which are seeking discipleship and they need discipleship. Second Peter chapter one, verses two through 11 growth is natural for the regenerated believer because Jesus Christ supplies us with all things for our growth. We must demonstrate our connection to the true vine by bearing the fruit that we see in this passage. And this passage is a great measurement of our spiritual growth. Now, when it comes to urban discipleship, now we have to understand, yo, it's, yo, it's, it's tough and it's labor intensive and it's not for the faint of heart. We got to deal with abuse, alcohol, drugs, emotional, physical, sexual. We got to deal with addictions, alcohol and drugs and sexual baggage of broken relationships. There's a lack of even common sense. There's dependency and then codependency. And then you have to deal with the educational nuances, illiteracy, a lack of reading comprehension, middle school, high school dropouts. And what I found is that new converts desire three things. Number one, availability from the one that is discipling them, a new, like a newborn baby. And I'm walking life on life with a man now who recently gave his heart to the Lord. And the reality of it is, is that he says, man, I'm gonna wear you out. And I said, brother, I was built for this. And I tell him, text me when you need me, call me when you need me. I'm, I'm there to pray with, there's been times where he's pulled me to the side. And he's like, I need you to pray with me. And guess what? We go in this, we go and we pray. I remind him of the scriptures and I say, no, I need to get back to this but you study the word and then let's back let's come back and let's dialogue and let's work through this in addition to this new converts need in addition to availability accessibility their security and knowing that you are near to them when they need you to be physically near to them like i said my mans will pull me to the side man pray with me damon i don't know what to do i'm about to lose it i'm like yo let's go before the lord and let's pray and then also accountability like in james 5:16 that they can be transparent as you are transparent with them so to recap the three things to give to new converts, number one, availability, let them know you were there for them, but set up boundaries, okay, set up boundaries, if they're calling you at two or three o'clock in the morning, let them know, I love you, I'm there for you, but you've got to understand that I have a life and I have responsibilities as well, and I would not be a good discipler if I don't show you how to set up boundaries, because if not, yes, you will be drained and you will be tapped out. Number two, accessibility, spend as much time with them outside of church in addition to this, have a balance with instruction and informal times together. That way you keep it natural. And then finally, accountability. You have to be willing to open your life to them if they are going to be open with theirs and make deposits into them before you make withdrawals, just like a checking account. So all of these, I think, are light nuances to the reality of what biblical discipleship looks like. And if we are going to entertain a balance between social justice and spiritual justice, I think that the cross is what we need to keep that balance, and I think that we will personify that balance when we seek to employ discipleship. Because listen to me, we can have more government funding, we can have more marches, and we can have more t-shirts made, we can have more benefit concerts, I'm, I'm all for those things, but here's the reality, none of those things change the hearts of sinners. In order for a community to be changed, the people have to be changed. In order for the people to be changed, the hearts of individuals have to be changed. According to Jeremiah 17, 9, all hearts are desperately wicked and curably ill. The gospel alone is the remedy for the wickedness of man's heart and the penalty of man's sin. All because of Jesus Christ and his willingness to save and his submission to death substitutionary in the place of sinners and his resurrection to prove that his payment was sufficient for sin so the reality then looks like this that if individuals are rocked by the gospel if the holy spirit regenerates them now we have the responsibility after the music stops like Craig said after the show is over after the conference is done, after the last person has left the march, after the last person has washed their t-shirt with your man's face on it that was just murdered, after CNN stops covering the Trayvon Martin case, after all of these national nuances fade to the back burner, here's the reality. Where's the church when it comes to biblical discipleship? We can talk about social injustice and we can contribute solutions to them on a social level, but we must never divorce social justice from spiritual justice. And this is what the inner city needs, a balance of the two. 
I pray that you would have listened to this and began to rummage through how can I, in my local context, articulate some great solutions for the social injustices at the same time, highlight the spiritual injustice that has been long overdue to become a part of the conversation. And I pray that you would engage in spiritual, biblical discipleship with the new converts in your context. Again, this is a job description for every believer. And I'm going to be honest with you, my schedule is very busy. And I'm shepherding a congregation in harmony with elders in our congregation, and I'm very busy. And the reality of it is, is that I talk to sinners on a consistent basis, and I love it, and I give them the gospel, and I've been so privileged to lead people to Christ personally just in 2012 alone, and I make myself available to them. And then when my schedule gets overwhelmingly packed with follow-up with them, the reality of it is, is that I then give them off to other solid believers that are saying hey I'm looking for someone to disciple gender based meaning men with men women with women married couple with married couple and I would challenge you to do the same if I can do it fam you can do it every believer has been called and commanded to live out biblical discipleship father I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have had today to discuss these realities of biblical discipleship I pray father God that your people would be vocal about the social injustice that is around us and looking at what Dr. Ray Bakke said in light of Isaiah 65 that we would study that passage and say okay Lord if this is what you desire to see in my city how can I contribute to this becoming a reality and father personally I'm convinced this becomes a reality when we have disciples flooding our streets biblical disciples that are living out the implications of the gospel so help us to step our game up in light of evangelism but balancing that evangelism with healthy ecclesiology and at the same time seeking to make disciples not converts alone father be glorified in all things in christ jesus name we ask you save our cities amen if you have any questions comments pushback again i'm speaking in very general terms uh, you can hit me up at dahorton at kbckc.org. This has been the second episode, episode number two of Counterculture. Continue to spread the word. Love y'all. God bless y'all. We'll be back in a few days with another podcast. Grace and peace. Your official number one network for Christian hip-hop and R&P. Holy, 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 holy Culture Radio.